God's word in Haggai 2, beginning in verse 20 says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I'll take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, may we see your promises, may we see you, and leave with more trust in who you are, because of who you are. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, what is the Bible? Is it the Word of God? Is it a record of nomadic herders and the stories of their visions or encounters with God? Is it God's love story with us? Is it an encyclopedia? Answers to life questions, roadmap for life, or something else? Kenneth Birding, he's a professor at Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and he laments in an article the loss of biblical literacy and to get his point across he shared some anecdotes from his students he writes while i was teaching at a college in new york new york i assigned each student to write a biographical sketch of an old testament character i came across the following line in a paper about the old testament figure joshua joshua was the son of a nun the student clearly didn't know that the nun was the name of Joshua's father, not apparently, nor apparently did he realize that Catholic nuns went around during the times of the Old Testament. But I'm sure it created quite a stir at the convent, he says. He goes on to say, I remember a student, not a new believer, who asked a question after class about Saul's conversion in Acts 9. She wanted to know whether this was the same Saul who was king over Israel. No, King Saul, a story is found in the Old Testament. The Saul of Acts, also known as Paul, is found in the New Testament. You know, biblical literacy is at an all-time low in the United States. In 2014, a study was done, and though 81% of the U.S. adults thought they are highly, moderate, or somewhat knowledgeable of the Bible, only 34% could say, name the first five books of the Bible. A year before, they'd done the same study, and only half could recognize that John the Baptist was not an apostle. Now, this isn't really too surprising when studies tell us that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. And almost one in five churchgoers say they never read the Bible, essentially the same number as read it every day. And the question, what is the Bible, and the issue of Bible literacy, I believe they are connected And this is the case because many people, when they come to the Bible, they see it as some kind of odd combination of unrelated books. There's some interesting stories. There's some pithy proverbs. Those inspirational psalms. There's some stuff we wish wasn't in there, maybe. And then Life of Jesus, that's great. And then some letters talking about some weird stuff. But the common unstated assumption is it's this kind of ragtag collection of books and other things. And it's kind of lacking in interest. However, 
Well, there are many ways we can think about the Bible. One of the best is to see that it's God's revelation of himself. And one key theme in this story is that of a kingdom, that God is a king, that a coup occurred, but there's a return of a king and there's a coming kingdom. There's this one coherent theme, and we could look at others running through the Bible. And that really ties into our passage here in Haggai. For in it, we're going to see that God makes promises to the government leader. And he's tying that promise into promises he has already made. And these promises continue to set the stage for the arrival of the main character of the Bible. And then the grand finale. This morning, hopefully we'll see that there are promises reaffirmed. This is on your bulletin if you want to see the outline. Then there are promises made, and there are promises kept. The first section, promises reaffirmed, is going to be us looking here at the end of Haggai. The next section, promises made, we're going to look at promises that God made prior to this in the Old Testament, and then promises kept. We'll be seeing how this was fulfilled in the New Testament. But first, promises reaffirmed. This is our fourth week, last week in the book of Haggai, and we've spent four weeks because we've noted that there are four separate messages given by God through Haggai. And we know this because every one of them is dated at the very beginning of the message. They tell you the date that it is given. You know, in the first chapter, we saw the first one where God rebuked the people in Jerusalem because though they returned from exile to rebuild God's house, their priorities moved from rebuilding God's house to refining their own. And so God's word came and stirred them through Haggai to repentance and action. And so on the 24th of day of the sixth month, they started to rebuild the temple. Then second in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, after four weeks, we saw that they were getting frustrated. We know this was the height of their religious festivals. And as they reflected on the past and the glory of all that had been before, and then they looked at what seemed so insignificant of what they were rebuilding, they were discouraged. And God told them, don't look at the past, but look to the glorious temple in the future that would come. And we saw that was ultimately pointing to Jesus, the temple. Then last week in verses 10 through 19, we saw the third message. It was on the 24th day of the ninth month, three days, three months, sorry, from when they started rebuilding. And God reminded them first, why they were under a curse, and then show them that blessings would come due to their faithfulness. And in this faithfulness, we saw that ultimately it would come because of Christ. Through Him, the blessings of God will come. And that leads to the message today, which is actually on the same day as the third message. The first told them of why their situation was dire, then how it got better, and now He's showing them how it's going to get better. I don't know if you've ever been to a conference, but often at a conference there's one theme, and then they'll have many different angles on that theme. Well, that's the same thing here. One theme, God's blessings, and this is the second angle, the angle of why God is going to bring blessings. And the reason why is because God is going to reaffirm His promises. And thus, in verse 21, God speaks directly to Zerubbabel. He was the political leader. He was the governor. And Zerubbabel isn't called to do something. He's called to know something. He's called to know that God has amazing plans. And those plans are going to occur through him. And we're going to see that God's plans are to continue God's plan of redemption. 
His plan to bless the world through Abraham. His plan to extend the Davidic kingship through Zerubbabel. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, so let's see what he says here. First, he says that God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Look back at chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, because God said the same thing there. For thus says the Lord of hosts, chapter 2, verse 6 says, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, God was going to shake the earth to bring in the wealth of the nations to glorify the temple. Well, here, God uses the same language of shaking the heavens and earth, but now to subdue the nations. We see in verse 22 that he's going to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. There's a great section in the movie, The Two Towers, in which the king, King Theoden, is under a spell. He's been cast under a spell, and a servant there, Wormtongue, is the one who has the power indirectly. Well, the hero, one of the heroes, Gandalf, comes in, and when Wormtongue tries to stop him, he says, Be silent, keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. Well, Gandalf then goes to free the king to release this enchantment on him. And the king just laughs and says, you have no power here. And then there's a battle. Gandalf wins. <sighs> Wonderful. And then what happens? Well, King Theoden grabs his sword and he throws Wormtongue downstairs and out of the city. The evil powers were overthrown both literally and metaphorically. Well, here in Haggai, God will not only overthrow kings from their thrones, but he's going to destroy their power, it says. You know, the greatest military weapons of their time, chariots, riders, horses, will be no match for what God is going to do. Not only is this going to happen, it will happen by the sword of their very own brothers. Now really, this language is recalling snapshots of God's prior military victories for Israel. When the Egyptians came with horse and rider and chariots, what did God do at the Red Sea? He overthrew the chariots. When Barak and Deborah fought against Sisera, what did God do? He overthrew the chariots. When Gideon, in the original 300, blew their trumpets and broke their jars and shouted, what did God do? He had the Midianites fight brother against brother. And as with the prior military routes, so in this victory that God is declaring in Haggai, it depends on God. It won't be their might. It won't be their superior battle plan. It won't be their advancements in military technology or weaponry. The only thing that will defeat the enemy is God bringing the victory. And so they can have hope. But on that day when God removes the kings of the nations, God will put someone else on the throne. He will place Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the servant of God, it tells us in verse 23. And it says at the beginning of verse 23 that this will happen on that day day on that day is referring generically to the future time in which god will act jesus talking about that day says in mark thirteen thirty two, but concerning that day or that hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father now to understand what is being promised here we need to understand how the bible thinks and speaks in regards to people and promises 
Because often a promise given to a person can be fulfilled through their descendants. For example, in Ezekiel 34, the Lord is condemning the wicked leaders in Israel. And he then says this in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Except this promise to David was written centuries after David's death. The the promise was saying it's going to be in your line, it's going to be through your descendants, David, that this promise is going to come. It's going to be one like David, one who's in the line of David. And the passage we just read in Ezekiel 34 is very pertinent to our passage here because God referred to David as my servant. And here, God refers to Zerubbabel as my servant. You know, God is linking, showing there's a connection. God often refers to David as my servant. And by calling Zerubbabel my servant, he's reaffirming the promises to David now to Zerubbabel. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of reading a lot into the passage. Come on, he said my servant. I mean, he's probably called lots of people my servant. That doesn't mean they're the Davidic king. Well, often there are phrases or sayings that we immediately know they're connected to something else. You know, if a politician was describing his views and he said, I want to speak softly and carry a big stick, we'd all know he's referring to President Roosevelt. If someone began a speech by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, we know they are drawing illusions from the Declaration of Independence. If someone really nailed a baseball and someone goes, boy, they're the Sultan of Swat, we know they're referring to Babe Ruth. You know, we hear these things and due to our culture, we immediately associate them with someone before. Well, when their culture heard my servant, and not only that, but declares him to be the son of Shealtiel, who is a descendant of David, and also called him my signet ring and a chosen of the Lord, all that language to them would say, God is reaffirming the promises now through Zerubbabel. And that's specifically important because of what happened before the exile. Before the exile is Jerusalem spiraled down into greater and greater rebellion and sin. God spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 22, God said, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hands of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they, they shall not return. So back in Jeremiah, before Haggai, God had clearly said, Leek, even if you were my signet ring, I would throw you away. You're not part of me. But now God is saying, Zerubbabel, you are my signet ring. He's affirming, yes, you are having the promises of God given to you. Now, signet ring was a prior generation's retina scan or thumbprint or signature. It was their way of validating, authorizing what they were doing. They would pour hot wax on a document or something else. And then they would put the ring or seal into it showing, oh, this was done by the authority. Well, God's signet ring, God's authority is being given to Zerubbabel. God is reaffirming the promises. 
Now, this is not an isolated story or promise, but it's tied into overarching promises that God has made to his people. Promises that create a central storyline that runs throughout the Bible. So now let's briefly examine these. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to have you turn to Genesis chapter 3. Then we'll turn to Genesis chapter 12, if you like to get your finger in extra places. And then 2 Samuel 7. So Genesis chapter 3, we see God's promise. And this first promise in the section promises made is one that we didn't deserve. Adam and Eve had just sinned, and all they deserve is death. However, though God curses them, he also promises hope. Now, we're not going to dive into all this because we're merely highlighting the portion where God promises hope, but also judgment. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Here, God is putting the curse on the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thus, God promises a seed of the woman, a child, who would come and crush the serpent. Thus, though they all deserve punishment, God promised one who would come and defeat the serpent. And this promise is the foundation upon which the others are built. So turn over just a few pages to Genesis chapter 12. Because we see that this next promise expands on the one in Genesis 3. Here God's speaking to Abram, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there are four promises God makes here. You know, God calls Abram out from his people and his land, and he says, first, he's going to give him a land. Second, he promises he'll make Abraham a great nation, implying many descendants. Third, he'll give Abraham a great name. And fourth, based on how they treat Abram, they will either be blessed or cursed. In essence, Abram, or the descendant of Abram, will be the mediator of, from whom God will bring blessings or cursings on the whole earth. And so the promise from Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent has now been expanded to include these promises to Abraham of blessing to the descendants. But then this is even going to get expanded in a promise made to King David. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So you have the five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1st and 2nd Samuel. So 2nd Samuel chapter 7. And in 2nd Samuel chapter 7, David is wanting to build a temple for the Lord. And so he goes and he calls the Nathan, the prophet Nathan and says, tells him, I want to build this house for the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord bless you. Yes, this is wonderful. Do it. But then as Nathan goes out. The Lord says, go back and tell David, you're not to build a house for me. Your son is to build a house for me. But then it goes on and it tells a wonderful promise that God gives to David. Look down in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. God speaking through Nathan says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up 
your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes, <clears throat> with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God, in essence, is saying, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. The house you want to build for me, David, your son is going to build it. And the kingdom I'm giving to you, it's never going to be taken from you. It was taken from King Saul, but mine, I'm giving you a son. going to be like that. Yes, I'll discipline you, like we've seen Jeconiah, the king who was destroyed, taken into exile. But yet, as we're also seeing, God was only disciplining because he is reaffirming that same promise to David through Zerubbabel. So what we're looking at in Haggai is how the promise of God is again being reaffirmed, the promises that have come from Genesis 3, Genesis 12, and 2 Samuel 7. Now it's important to realize that these promises have not been replaced as though the later promises then annul or get rid of the prior promises. Not at all. Rather, the prior promises are the foundation upon which the future ones are built. Thus the promised child of Eve will also be of the family of Abraham, who will bring blessings to all the earth. And he'll also be a king in the line of David. Now we're only looking at snapshots. If we looked at all the promises in the Old Testament of this one who was to come, we would see it couldn't just be any mere man. For God to keep his word has to be someone who's more than a man. And yet God keeps his promises. So our third section is promises kept. And to see this, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, we have a beginning that any modern editor would immediately remove. It's the type of beginning of a book that gets people to quickly close it and go, not interested. Because Matthew begins in a way that seems so boring, so unengaging, and so pointless. Because he begins with a genealogy. Yet this is only boring unengaging and pointless if you haven't been following the plot. If you've been following the plot of the Bible, then these words stir anticipation. They stir excitement. They stir hope. Because notice what it says, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first words are saying, we're talking about the person who is going to fulfill all the Old Testament promises. And to the original reader, the Jew, they would have been like, this is exciting. And to make this clear, he walks through Abraham all the way down to the exile, or they call it here the deportation. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, that's the one who was condemned in Jeremiah at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And then Matthew 1, 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. The very person we're talking about in Haggai, the promise made to Zerubbabel is being fulfilled here. Because if you look down at verse 16 of Matthew 1, 
It goes on, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And these words are letting the reader know this is not just an interesting story. This isn't just another biography. This is someone who is in the genealogical line of God's promises. That is why Matthew goes to detail, detailing all of the lineage of Abraham all the way down. Now, it's not just that he's a descendant of these people. Jesus had brothers and sisters. They were descendants of those people. But Jesus was specifically prophesied that he would be this. When the angel Gabriel told Mary of her carrying Jesus, he said to her in Luke one thirty-two, He, Jesus, your son will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Saying this is the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic promise. Later, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowd shout, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna means save us. And then they also say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know, they realize Jesus is the Davidic king who's coming to save us. And this is what Jesus' whole ministry was about. Thus, when Jesus begins his ministry, Mark chapter 1 Verse 14, he begins with these words. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Now when we hear the word gospel, we have in our minds the connotation of something like, Oh yeah, that's Jesus died for my sins. Well, that's not untrue. But when they heard the word gospel, it meant much more. For them, the word gospel was not a religious term. The word gospel was used for royalty. It was used for the announcement of a king coming. You know, when a conquering king would go back through the territories, he would first send a herald, and they would say, the king is coming. The gospel is what would be said. And then the people would either respond, oh, the conquered king's coming, we're going to submit, bow the knee when he comes, or we don't believe he's conquered us, and we're going to fight. Well, Jesus, the gospel has been declared that the king has come. And Jesus is saying he's come to restore all things under his rule and reign. And that's why the time was fulfilled, Jesus said. You know, all the promises of the one who would come and crush the serpent, who would bring blessing, who would be the Davidic king, have been pointing to Jesus, who is now here. And thus, this is Jesus' message from beginning to end. Matthew 4.23, and it says, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So how do they know the gospel of the kingdom has come? Well, because the king goes and he heals diseases. He removes afflictions. In other words, he's undoing the curse from Genesis 3. Because he's the king who's come to bring blessing and even after jesus rose from the dead it says in acts 1 3 he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of god that was jesus ministry from beginning to end telling that he the king has come and god's kingdom is being brought to earth this raises a challenging question though 
And that is, if Jesus is the king, then why was he not recognized? Not only was he not recognized, but also his very people, the very ones who were to welcome him, they crucified him. The problem was when they were chanting Hosanna, meaning save us, they wanted to be saved from Rome. They wanted deliverance from a political or military power. But Jesus came to deliver them from a domain that was much greater. He came to deliver them from the domain of darkness and to transfer them to the kingdom of light. Jesus and his message is not what they wanted to hear. They wanted a conquering warrior, not a crucified Savior. They sought crowns of gold, not of thorns. They wanted a royal throne, not a wooden cross. And yet, what is the charge that is nailed on Jesus' cross? The king of the Jews. Now, it's interesting. Before this, tells us in John, they'd sought to make Jesus king, but he'd gone away. His kingdom would not come through people's applause. Or Satan, when he tempted Jesus, he tells him, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you just bow down to me. But Jesus knows, no. The way of the king is not through exaltation and might, but humiliation on the cross. You know, what appeared to be the defeat of Jesus was actually Jesus fulfilling the promise to crush Satan under his foot. You know, at the cross, Jesus took our curse so that through him the promise to Abraham might be fulfilled of blessings going to all the families of the earth. By his death and resurrection, he conquered sin and death And his crown of thorns stood no longer for shame, but honor and power. And thus, this is the message Jesus gives us to proclaim. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, before Jesus ascends, he gives what we often refer to as the Great Commission, our marching orders, so to speak. And we often start by quoting verse 19 in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. But it actually starts in verse 18, because Jesus says there, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, no one has more rights or power than he does. He's the supreme ruler and sovereign. He's the king. He rules every angel and demon, every planet and star, every cell and organ, every person and power. And he's now the ruler in two ways. First, he is the ruler because he created it all. But he's second the ruler because he redeemed it. He bought it back again through his blood. So Jesus twice owns everything through creation and salvation. So the gospel is the good news of a kingdom. The news that the king has come. Jesus came to restore God's kingdom, and through his death and resurrection, he has conquered all enemies. He defeated defeated the ultimate enemies of sin and death, so that all authority now belongs to him. That is why Paul will say in Philippians, one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Because that's what we do before the king. Now, sometimes Christians will speak in ways that are a little unhelpful. They'll say, you need to make Jesus your Lord. Well, that's like saying you need to make President Trump your president. 
You may like him or dislike him. You may be happy he's off, he's or not. But he is our president. Jesus is Lord. You don't make him Lord. You acknowledge him as Lord or you rebel against him. And we should be eager to tell this message that the Lord reigns, that he's come. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So let us pray. Let us give. Let us tell and go so that the good news of King Jesus may be spread and that he will come again quickly. We began by discussing biblical literacy. And now we often don't see a connection to the varied parts of the Bible. What I'm trying to convey is that the Bible is really one story. It's God's story of how the true king made a perfect world. But in his kingdom there were rebels. And the punishment for rebels was death. But God, along with judgment against the rebels, also promised grace and mercy. He promised a child who would come and crush sin and death. He later made promises of blessing through the line of Abraham. And then to David, the promise of a ruler who would reign forever and ever. Thus, from beginning to end, the Bible is about one character with one story and one main actor. Thus, Paul writing about God's promises says in 2 Corinthians 1, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Jesus is the servant of God. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the perfect prophet from whom complete revelation is given so that no more is needed. Jesus is the perfect priest from whom no other priest needs to come. He's the perfect sacrifice so we never have sacrifices again. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so the question before us is, will we, will you praise him? Will you acknowledge him, bow your knee before him? You know, the truth is you will either joyfully now or submissively later. You know, the sad reality is that for many, the Bible is nothing more than a good story, some myth to get us through life, the projection of human's own view onto God. You know, it's much like the story that Soren Kierkegaard told that Mark Bodo once recounted. He tells of the opening night of this new theatrical comedy. The theater house was packed, and it was everyone was so eager for the new show. However, though the theater was buzzing with anticipation, the dressing room was bursting into flames. An accident led to a fire erupting and quickly spreading. Well, a clown... And the show recognized the danger not only to the dressing rooms, but everyone in the theater if they did not immediately leave. So he burst onto the stage and started dramatically warning the people to leave. The crowd applauded. The clown repeated his warning, but more urgently. By now he was center stage, flailing his arms, his eyes wide in panic. The crowd went wild. Whistles, cheers, raucous laughter. Never had they seen such a routine. Kierkegaard concludes, I think the world will come to an end in the same way. The human race will stand in thunderous ovation, calling for an encore, convinced it's just another happy joke. 
A lot of people treat the Bible that way. Oh, a good story. There's some good morals. That's, yeah, there's some good things in there. Jesus was a good teacher. It's not just a good story. It's the truth of the King who made this world, who came and died for this world, and who one day will perfectly rule this world again. And so we read our Bibles, not just to gather more facts or be able to answer Bible trivia questions, but because we want to know Him. We want to know the King, and on every page, it's writing about Him. Won't you enter into His kingdom now? Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He's better than any other king or master you will ever have. Trust Him. He is the King. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we, not just because we have to, because we love you, may we bow the knee and rejoice that you are the king who's come. Lord, may we see that what your son did is what our world needs for restoration, for the removal of all that ails us. Lord, may you be honored as we are your subjects. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.